Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. Now, this is my first Willosophy that's uh, happened backstage. I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about this. This next guest um, is somebody whose work I've been a fan of for a very long time, but we haven't really uh, got to kind of meet and hang out. So this is going to be our first kind of bonding experience. So guest, uh, this is the question that I warned you I would ask, <laughs> but here it is. Who are you? Uh, I'm Bryony Kimmings. Uh, I'm a performance artist. That's what I call myself anyway. Although this week I'm teaching and I said I was a theatre maker. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Do you think that a label's important when it comes to... Because performance artist, I think, says something, but what does it say? I know, it's kind of difficult because I've always wanted to be faithful to the fact that I, I make performance art. So I make what I think is like art that happens in a performative or live way. But it also comes laden with the baggage of like people thinking that you're going to bleed all over them or <laughs> or do a poo and eat it. So like, you know, like it's. So yeah, I want to kind you, of keep just the... for the record. Have you ever done either of those things to an audience? No. Okay. Good. I had to think about that, didn't right, I? Yeah. I've probably done awful things. I mean, there must have been a course at uni. You must have to do it yeah, for exactly. a week of pooing on the audience exactly. or something. I must have done something like that. <laughs> Did my credits are bleeding on somebody. <laughs> um, but. Um, yeah, so I think I do actually, I don't, I'm not committed to, um, I just call myself whatever pe- people kind of want to hear, because I think I do, I'm a comedian, and sometimes I'll do bits that are just stand up, and then and then sometimes I make music, so I kind of just wear different hats, and I think that's actually probably the most enjoyable way to exist, as long as everyone doesn't get confused, <laughs> You know, so I just change it depending on who I'm talking to. Uh, does that mean that audiences can find you hard to define or do you like that? I kind of, that's kind of what I aspire to be like, I mm. guess. But I don't want people to find that alienating or like in any way kind of sort of wanky or arty. Can I swear? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, good. It's a um, podcast. I, I, oh yeah, of course. And <laughs> wanky's not really a swear word. No. Um, if you consider that swearing, then you are not the provocative <laughs> performance artist that we thought you were. No, that's true. Cunt. <laughs> yes. There you go. Um, so, uh, I can't remember what the question was. Oh, well, I... I, well, anyway, well, we'll who get, am I? We'll get back to all this. Yeah. I, I wanted to know how you answered that question because yeah. it's always interesting to see what people say. Yeah. Now, this is a podcast where I ask people if they have a philosophy. Now, often those philosophies can be to do with love or life or mm. family or day-to-day or, you know, often they tend to be about people's work. Yeah. Uh, do you have, like, a, you know, a philosophy behind your work or behind your life or something that you kind of, you know, it's aspire to and have a touchstone of? I don't I don't know because I've never thought about it like a philosophy before because I, I I'm probably scared of that word because I probably think it means something academic right and I don't and I don't know what that means uh-huh. you know what I mean um someone's going to talk about Nietzsche or something right um <laughs> but I guess I probably I probably am quite staunch in kind of how I do certain things and I think that probably comes from like ethical and kind of um I guess philosophical standpoints. Some people would say I'm quite stuck in my ways. Okay, well, that's, um, but, but that's interesting in itself. Yeah. Now, what, give me an example of what you mean by that. So, I guess that um, I guess that I, I guess I love in a specific way, or expect to be loved in a specific way. Is there a? I mean, <laughs> we're not looking for my love details, but yeah. yeah. What do you, what do you think it is? Like, what do you look for? You know, in somebody who's going to be a partner to you? It's so changed, isn't it? It, it? it changes so much as you get older, I suppose. And like, only very recently, my my current partner, who hopefully will be my final death dead partner, uh-huh. uh, my fiance, because you're killing him next. Because I'm going to kill him, yeah. so I can get rid of him. Um, I think that. I've, I've like it's one of those relationships where you you suddenly come into your own or you kind of suddenly realize oh that's what love was and I hadn't had one of those before and I'm like 34 I think that that was a really kind of a really it's been kind of like really transformative for me so I guess now I understand that you know relationships about talking and about you know clear communication about emotions and kind of real respect and kind of like and and kind of like being very loving whereas I always thought they were about like being a wanker to each other and like (laughs) fucking around you know what I mean so it's like really strange because it's only very recently that I've I guess I've been shown love and that teaches you how to love back did you think when that happened that you were was that was that something you were looking for or did it take you by surprise no it totally took me by surprise and I thought I'd been in love and then I realized of course I hadn't been in love I'd been in lust or I'd been in 
a, like a very destructive sense of turmoil, you know, <laughs> which I thought was love. I get, I don't know. I didn't have parents that were together, so I think it sounds really cheesy and or a little bit like I don't mean it in a kind of like sad way, but I don't think I saw heterosexual relationships that often. So I think, yeah, it took me by surprise in a glorious way. And I think for a while, I, I probably was a bit like, oh, I don't, I don't know what this is. And, oh, this is quite difficult for me. And I've always been very staunch about things. And actually, I, I'm probably like one of the worst people to like try and love because I don't really accept it that well. I think so, lots of people are like that, actually. Yeah. So tell me then, if you are that person, if you think you are that person at the very least, mm. then what was it about uh, your partner that made him sort of, I guess, you know, come to you and, and want to stick through that and kind of go, go get to this place that you're at now? I don't know. I don't know whether he thought... Uh, to be honest... What He's happened... on the podcast next week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get his response then. I think we both... I think he wasn't spectacular at loving either. Right. I don't think he'd ever been in love, really. Although I'm sure all his ex-girlfriends are now screaming, no, please. But um, just, just for the record, too, if you're an ex-girlfriend of his and you hate <laughs> listening to this podcast, yeah. I assume that's the only reason you've tuned in, please tune out now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that something happened in our lives that made us have to think about love really very carefully. And I think it was the finding of Tim's... Um, antidepressants that that kind of unraveled this massive secret that he'd been keeping from himself and kind of his whole everybody in his life for such a long time that suddenly his secret was out that he was you know he was living with clinical depression and no one had known and my secret was out that perhaps I what I was looking for was someone to look after and I'd never admitted to myself that that's what I wanted and Uh that that could also be love and that could be part of a relationship. And I think anytime I ever wanted to be nice to somebody or if I ever felt like I wanted to be good to somebody, I thought for some reason that that would be a stupid thing to do. So we both realised at the same time maybe. That's a really, okay, so for a start, (laughs) that's a really good area because I think that's an observation that a lot of people... Some, sometimes the thing that you want to do is be able to help someone else or give to somebody else yeah. or you know be there to support somebody else yeah I know and and I don't know why I thought that that was a negative thing because of course I don't spend my day being his mother but I do spend my time thinking about him all the time and I, and of course it only really works if that person respects the fact that you're thinking of them all the time and probably is also doing exactly the same for you which he does for me um but yeah, it's funny. It's funny what your version of love is until you kind of grow up enough to find out that it wasn't what you thought it was. Maybe it's uh, how much of it do you think that we get from? You said that you came from a family where the parents weren't together. Yeah. So I've always because my parents have been together for forty three years, right? Whoa. And you know, still I would say yeah, very much in love, and you know. You know, not necessarily a demonstrably loving couple, but yeah. like a very much you are 100% sure that, you know, they're in it together. And, you know, mm. I never had a thought that they were ever going to split up or not be together, you know, through good and bad. And there was definitely some, you know, some yeah. bad times. Like you always kind of felt that. So I just grew up thinking that's what life was, you know. That, yeah. But you find that people who didn't come from that have a completely different perspective on that. How much of that do you think comes from your parents? How much comes from the media's uh, representations of what love are, you know, from your friends? Like, is it, who, who was important or where do you think your opinions on those things came from beforehand? I definitely think they come from your parents. I do, because there's so much learning that happens before you're really even conscious that you're learning. Do you know what I mean? And I think that sort of early years development from like one onwards is like so instrumental to who you are as a person I do think you do learn behavior from film or you know and I can definitely you know I've imitated things through films and through media and through friends but I think it is your parents and I think we just my grandparents were together but he was such a shit to her all the time and she just took it and 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 my my mum had had her heart broken, which she won't mind me saying, like so badly by my father that all men meant was, all that the man was was a heartbreaker. So as soon as you're taught that, I guess just you, that's so instrumental in how you view the world. We didn't have any men in our family really, so we're all women. We're all really powerful and strong. We don't, you know, like we're all t- totally capable of existing alone. So you kind of have in your mind like why would I need a man? Right. 
so then it's like having to relearn and I think that's what my 20s were spent doing relearning like I went out with some such strange people and it was like oh I'm trying on this archetype of a man and I'm uh. trying on this archetype yeah it was very strange so I think it took me a long time to understand equal partnership you know that I could share like I'm terrible at sharing Tim now is like you're so selfish like you know everything is for you I'm, isn't that how life is and he's like no we share and it's like oh, I don't want to share you know <laughs> But like, yeah, kind of getting it now. <laughs> also, there's got to be like, I guess, a positive to that as well. The fact that you felt so self-determined, the, felt, the fact that you grew up thinking, I can just do it myself, yeah. that you didn't have those boundaries or restrictions on what you thought was possible to do. Exactly. I think I'm pregnant, right? I'm five months pregnant, even though I don't look... I know I do. Um, you don't, actually. <laughs> I got my belly poking out a bit, but... Um, <laughs> Maybe it looked like I had too much beer when I was in Adelaide. No, you look like you're pregnant. But yeah. You don't look five months pregnant. Yeah, nearly five months. Um, so look, you look like you're at that. You're you are at that pregnant stage where if you didn't know someone was pregnant, I did know that you were pregnant. Yeah. But if you didn't know someone was pregnant, you wouldn't mention it. You'd be yeah, at you'd that be stage like, of going, mm. "I'm not sure if I'm about she to say the most awful thing." She might have just had a baby. Thing, but... Yeah. Or she might just be a bit tubby. Yeah. Which is fine, you know. But yeah, of course. Um, but um, so. I think, yeah, so because I'm pregnant and because I'm in a, you know, a relationship that I find very stable and very happy about, um, it, and that seems great, but the concept of bringing up a child in a two-parent family, if it's, you know, it just seems very, it's like completely alien to me. How's it going to work? Because like, my mum just told, taught us everything and she was so capable that, yeah, the, the positive of being brought up by a single woman who is like, just does everything and doesn't even like she's not even like saying like I'm superwoman I'm super feminist I'm doing everything she's just doing it by demonstrating and doing that um you become yeah you become very capable but I'm now I'm like panicking like if I have a little girl I want her to be like that so then how do you make I guess it's just making sure that I demonstrate to her that women and you know very important to me that women can do everything that a man can do and that's like what all of my work centers around anyway you know what i mean as much as it's not always like this is a feminist show it is super feminist right well because you think because i'm a woman and, treat, yeah. Treat equally. <laughs> yeah exactly you know how that's feminist yeah. at the moment still yeah it yeah. really shouldn't be we should yeah. get to a point where <laughs> i know but, um, so yes, yeah, like, well, there's so many interesting things that have already been brought up that I want to explore. So we'll pick through them one by one, and we'll get to each and every one of them. So um, I want to get back to um, your parenting philosophy, but we'll save that for a bit because I want to talk about uh, the idea of um, you know the fact that you and Tim did a show together, yeah. and I think that's because he run me through what happened there. You, you mentioned earlier that you found the what well, the, the the discovery of the antidepressants. Yeah. But tell me, because he's not a performer, right? Not or at wasn't all. a performer beforehand. No, he worked in advertising, uh-huh. um, account director of like a big buying agency. So he'd spend his days like buying advertising space and going for lunches. Like his life was like lunches all the time. That's all I ever saw him do. Right. <laughs> Having lunch with people. Um, so no, he he. How it worked was six months we were together. He moved in after about a month. It was like really quick. Any fear about that going so quickly? No, I just no. Not Did at you? All. Is it, was it one of those things where you just felt it straight as soon away? As soon as I soon like not as soon as I met him because we met on a one night stand, you know, like and it was like we were both battered, so it wasn't it wasn't clear that it was going to be anything. But the next day there was a part of me that I was like, Oh my God, this guy, which was really lucky because it was basically just like you, you'll do. (laughs) And he was the same with me, you know, um, (laughs) both of us were on the pull. It was like, that'll do. So the next day, new romantic comedy from Brian. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do. It's so funny, but it was that, and we both admit that. I mean, he says that he was like, you know, saw me across the room. I was so drunk, I couldn't even see. So, um, yeah, the next day, though, it was like something magical started to happen, and it was very, very quick. Um, Six months into the relationship, he was living with me. I found these tablets in his backpack. So Talapram, which I recognize the name of from having a friend with, um, also with mental health problems, um... He thought I would instantly leave. You know, he had it in his head that this was a total weakness and something that was, like, completely unappealing. And I was like, 
there was no way I would leave for that reason. Like I know loads of people on antidepressants, but he perhaps didn't. You know, was it? Do you think is that a, is that a gender difference? Do you think is it more intimate for like is it more more of an admission for a man to say that you know he's struggling or needs some help than it is for a woman or is um, it do you think unfortunately across the board? I think unfortunately although I see gender as a spectrum I think in terms of like the the built idea of what a man is especially our generation or you know older is um is that men don't talk about their feelings that that having emotions is not having emotions but crying is certainly weak and then if you have a disease that actually one of the symptoms is water leaking from eyes then right. you know <laughs> you like you're a bit screwed so he was he was like adamant that I was going to leave and I was like I just was annoyed because he hadn't told me really right but um you know I understood after he explained why he hadn't told me that he hadn't told anybody so of course, I didn't instantly think, let's make a show. Right. Um, although my brain probably did go, show, show. Um, well, you're, you're a performer. Every yeah. time something happens, you're like, could that yeah. be a show? I make, I make stuff about my life. So, like, I guess I'm always thinking that, that that's interesting or at least that could be a subject of a show. Uh, six months of sort of process of kind of coming out, I guess, to friends and family for him, us becoming, like, total experts in the disease. It was like, we need to... We need to become really smart about this. You know, he wanted to come off his tablets. He had been on them for eight years. He'd never tried really to come off them. Um, because it would be terrifying to have to try to do that by yourself. I think a couple of times he'd just gone cold turkey, which yeah. is like the worst the thing worst. you can do. Yeah. Because not only do you, ha- when you go cold turkey off those sort of medications, not only do the original problems come back, but you get everything else like exactly. amplified because exactly. you're coming off the medication. Yeah. And also he was partying. So like he was like, you know, so... Um, we came off the tablets um, and I still hadn't decided to make a show really it was six months later after that he came off the tablets he had a really big breakdown and I was actually in Melbourne for the comedy festival and he was at home and I came back from from that to find that he had lied and kind of hidden the fact that he'd had a breakdown which he was doing to protect me to protect himself all of those things you know again it wasn't like what are you doing but it was more like oh man and I just said, I'm not going away again. Like, it, I, I, I've got, come to the stage with performing that I'm, a, I'm less and less bothered about being away or being on stage. I find that not conducive with the, my lifestyle that I want. So I was already like, I can't do this. But I had worked really hard to be able to be invited to places, you know, across the other side of the globe. So he was like, don't be stupid. And I said, well, you're coming with me next time. And he was like, well, we can't afford that. And I was like, we'll have to teach you how to be a technician. And then he was like, no, that'd be rubbish. And then, no offense, technicians. And then he was, and then I was like, let's make a show. And um, he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, let's make a show. And what would it be about? Like, what's your expertise? And he was like, well, it's either advertising or mental health. So I was like, mental health. Yeah. And it was a joke for a while. It was called The Way You Make Me Feel at the beginning because it was based on our favourite Michael Jackson song because right. we were like really into Michael Jackson and we were like, there's going to be Michael Jackson in it and there'll be like snogging in it. Like it was like all the things that would be in a show that we made and in the car yeah. we used to joke around and sing songs and stuff. And and then we, I was like, let's actually do it. He hated his job. Like it was so bad for him mental health wise. You know, it's like the worst going to the, a job you hate selling your soul to Barclay Cart. yeah how much how much of that because I mean we can stop down on each step of this but yeah. how much of that idea of being happy through what you do making you happy in the rest of your life do you think do you, is that a is that a thing that you think is very important it's difficult because I think that depression, clinical depression, is a is a, is an illness. I What's think it's a disease yeah. that you can get regardless of. Yeah, you can have the best. This is the thing life. that people don't understand. Yeah, you can externally have the best life to everybody else, but yeah. you've got a disease. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't think it's has anything to do with that part of it. But I think in terms of well being and how you can how you can manage clinical depression in terms of like you can make it better or worse for yourself in a way, kind of the, I guess, the, stuff, uh, the periphery that, of it. To get away from the depression a little, I guess more, more broadly what I was asking there was, Sorry. for you or for me or for anyone who's listening, I, oh my how, God, much, yeah. how much do you value that idea of, so you know, find something you love and that will, you know, yeah, and set do you that. Free. And that will kind of set you free a little. Well, we're going through that a bit at the moment because Tim's not found something he loves. You know, he's left his job and he really enjoys performing, but he's not... He's not like 
suddenly found this dream job and he's like, I'm never going to find the thing I love. And some people I know have never. So I Well, fo- I would say pos- possibly, and that's why I ask you this question. Because yeah. sometimes when I say it to people, I'm very lucky that I have done the thing that I wanted to do for all my life. But yeah. I understand that most of the people who come to my shows probably aren't doing that thing. No. And so it sometimes feels like it's easy to say, find the thing you love and you'll yeah. never work a day in your life. But most people probably don't no. get that luxury. I think it's very important to love what you do. I think... It's difficult, isn't it? Because it doesn't always work. Like you're saying, it doesn't always work out like that. But I think for me, um, yeah, I think it's very important. It's very important to my well-being to to be in control of my own life, not answering to a manager or a boss. Like being creative is very important for me. And I can see in Tim the, the year that we've spent together that those things have also liberated him in ways, you know, made him a happier person. Not to do with his depression, but just as a happier person. We can get up in the morning what time we like some days, you know. It's, we're lucky. It's, it's interesting that you appreciate that that's lucky. Because sometimes I say to, you know, because uh, you know, I mean, performers all love to moan as well to yeah. each other. And sometimes I'll be like, I say, I, I was talking to my brother-in-law at Christmas. Lovely guy, my brother-in-law. Uh, I, we were, but we were just chatting generally. And I was talking about some movie that I'd seen last week. And he hadn't seen that movie. But, you know, he's got four kids with my sister. And, you know, he's got a job and he's busy. And I said, well, what was your favorite movie last year? And he goes, we didn't actually see an adult movie last year like they went and saw some kids films but yeah. he didn't see one adult movie at the movies in a year and i was like i saw four last week oh my <laughs> like, god yeah i know we are lucky right and we but, do and we do have exciting i, I mean i have an exciting life like uh-huh. but then i think also i crave for like a very boring life you know so work-life balance was something that you yeah. already have hinted at a little bit yeah uh, i'd love to talk to you about that what what is your perspective on that? Because I think as a performer, particularly when things start to go well and people are like, we'd love you to come to this festival, we'd love you to travel mm. here and do this. Mm. How do you then go, but I'm also very interested in the fact that I'm in this relationship now and we're building a life together mm. and you know, de- devoting enough time to those things. Do you consciously think about that? Are you instinctive about that? No, what, what are your thoughts? Everything about my life is meticulously planned. Okay, That's interesting. The, um, I think, and probably I don't, I'm not very free in 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 my life really at all because I I really I really like being in control. Uh-huh. And where does that come from? I don't know. I I think I've just always been like that. I think I I don't like not knowing what's happening a uh-huh. lot. Like we have a friend staying with us from Peru at the moment and I'm like freaking out that she doesn't know how to get to Soho Theatre today because she's meeting us to come and see your show. And um and it's like almost like obsessive and she's like I'll be fine and I'm like it it freaks me out so I think it's just I don't know where it comes from probably some kind of like psychological trauma in my childhood um but yeah I'm I'm very I plan everything I know what I'm going to be doing in 2018 you know like I, I know I want to know and I also find it that when I set my sights that far away I have I can dream really big and I can be like I have to achieve the following things to get to that thing so and I very much always want to be going to a new place in my career so that's one side of me like Uh super organized like really trying to get like trying to be good trying to make sure that my art's really good trying to make sure that my audiences grow all of that stuff and then on the other side creeping slowly in over the past few years has been like buy a house settle down have a baby like just give it all up that would be a really great thing to do you know and it's weird it's i have no control over it it's one thing in my life that i don't have control of is this i guess hormonal like change that's happened in me in my 30s i'm trying to phase out touring I'm trying my best to become a writer, to write shows with other people in and figuring out at the moment how you can have an identity that's really clear and you can be like, that's so, that's so Bryony Kimmings at work, but she's not even slightly in it, you know. And that, I think, as well as like having made five shows that are all like, hi, my name's Bryony and I did this thing and then this is a show about what happened, you know, which is after a while you're like, yeah, it's kind of boring. I know how to make that show. The next one I make will be really great because I know how to make that show. But then people are coming up behind you making the same show and you're like, I need to make something new. So at the moment I'm writing a musical. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that see, that is, I like that idea of you thinking, how do I evolve my own work? Because that's, 
because I like you said you, you're talking about uh, different things in each show, but you get to the point where you can go, okay, well, this is how I can construct these things into a narrative that works. So how do you decide to... Because like some people would go, well, if you're onto a good thing that people love, change the topics and keep writing these great shows and you know build your audience. What makes you think, no, I need to step away a bit, I need to do something different? Is that that you fear that your audience will get bored with what you're doing or is it just generally that you need to do something different inside you? Or a combination of the both I or that, other things. Yeah, I think that it's to do with the fact that you see people and that they're doing the same thing over and over again and you're like, I, I think to myself, I've se- you've done it, I've seen it. Like, I, I, I'm very critical as an audience. I'm like, I've, I saw you do this last year. You know, I, I don't, I'm not interested in seeing the same thing again. I'm always interested in innovation in anything, you know, like a new film and anything and anything. I, I like, I like to see something as a challenge or maybe as like, how can we um, mess around with this? It's okay, that's fine. Come in, checks. That's right. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, I said that people would come in during it, and it's yeah. totally fine. It checks the water, don't you? I do. Yeah. Why though? Why is uh, that? Well, this is Legionella. Um, I also check fire extinguishers and that the toilets clean. What's oh. Legionella? Legionella. Well, that's a, like a to make sure you don't get like a, some terrible disease, right? Bacterial yeah, bacterial infection. Oh that my can god, kill this you. is amazing. So, well, that's good. It's, in shower heads. Yeah. really disgusting and horrible. Right. Oh. So there you go. So um, the good news about the Soho Theatre is they check for hideous They haven't diseases, got Legionella. Nice. You can you can take that back. Yeah. They don't have Legionella. It's good to have a little if thing. anyone dares to say that they do, we know yeah. that's not true. Exactly. <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, he writes it on the list. Okay, here's, here's what I want to ask you because I've got a bunch of things. But uh, yeah. I want to ask about, let's go back to high school. Let's say high school when you are starting to think about what you want to do when you finish school. Are you a good student? Are you a person who's like was enjoying school? Did you think that you would study more? Did you have a clear idea of what it was that you wanted to do going forward? Like take me yeah. back to you at sort of like um, 16, 17, something oh like that. Oh god, I was horrible. I was horrible. I probably wasn't that horrible. I was I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I definitely didn't go like I want to be a performance artist. I didn't even know what performance art was. From quite a small town, quite towny. Um uh, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, um, yeah, I didn't really... When, my mum's not, like, academic, so it was like was never, like, you should go to university. That wasn't... I kind of understood what that was, but it wasn't really what we did in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to smoke weed and wear short skirts, you know. I didn't... Right. I, I enjoy, <laughs> like... You know, that's all. And I was and I was naughty at school. I very very bright actually. I didn't I didn't. That's taken me a really long time to say. Okay, I'm actually quite bright, mm-hmm. but I'm not academic. Right. Um, not in a kind of traditional sense. And I think that's less to do with like knowledge and more to do with authority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I had a massive problem with authority in school, and I definitely can remember being you know kicked out of a lot of lessons and. I always, it's a theme that comes up a yeah. lot when I talk to artists in particular yeah. on this podcast, which is that suspicion of unearned authority. Yeah. Uh, like, is that just something that's instinctive to you, you think? Like, uh, just that certain people that, you know, when you see someone up the front and you're like, I just feel like you're full of shit and I can't engage yeah, in Yeah, I don't know. But I guess my mum and I never had that relationship where she was like, I am the matriarch and you're going to do what I say. We had a very, like, we had a very, negoti- like, it was negotiating and it was, and it was, I can remember saying to my mum, like, everybody goes out at night and I, I, like, they sneak out of their house at, like, 12 midnight. They all go and smoke weed down the park and I really don't want to go because I don't want you to get up in the night and to worry where I am. And she was like, okay, thanks for telling me that tonight you can go, you know? Yeah. So it was like, and everyone was like, come oh, on, I'm so cool. And it's like, right. no, it's just a negotiation between two human beings. And so I think as soon as someone's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because that's not in the rules. And I'm like, what rules, you know? Yeah. So it was like, I remember German just being like the, the German class, because we always uh-huh. had German, just being like so adamant that she, that she was right about something. And I just makes my blood boil when it's like, she was wrong, I think. So I spat my chewing gum in her face. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> it's not like... And a performance <laughs> artist was born. <laughs> I think there was a couple of teachers that I really got on with. And I, and I, was and, now was there someone who inspired you? Was there somebody who had time for you? Was there something so. that you took from school that you still have with you? There was definitely a teacher when I and it was a theatre teacher that was that wouldn't that didn't take my shit 
right? So she, I, you know, I'd never do my homework. I'd never, you know, never do anything. And then she really bollocked me one day. And she didn't just like really t- tell me off. She cussed me out like and got it right. She was like, you're a scared little girl who doesn't know if she's ever going to be able to leave her council estate. You know, she really like was really. And I was like, I started crying. Right. And I was like, she knows all of my fears, you know. But I loved her after that. And I was oh, like, she's totally correct. And of course, like at that age, you don't know why you're r- railing or rallying against authority or, you know, or what you're terrified of. But she hit the nail on the head. And for some reason, it was like, I just loved her. And another teacher as well who taught law, who I was really, you know, we had law for some reason. And I was really good at it. And she was the only person that was like, she didn't know me because she was new to the school. Right. And she didn't know my sister. So I guess she was like, oh, this student's actually quite good. And probably all the teachers in the, you know, in the, cl- in the staff room were like, are you mental? And well, she was she, like, she you should no study law. Yeah. She to bring to the table. Yeah. Right? So I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I finished my A-levels re- with really bad results. I'd stayed on at sixth form just because the guy that sold weed that I, that I knew was staying. <laughs> you know, like it wasn't, there was all my decisions that are life decisions were never like, it would be academically good. It was like, well, this seems like a great, you know, right. two more years of school. Plus, I, can, I, I like how much weed's come up. <laughs> Normally, I'm the one in the podcast who's like blaming all my decisions on weed. It's good to have somebody else on. It was such a boring place where I grew up. You know, there really wasn't anything to do. I mean, there was a lot of heroin in in that area and luck, like how luckily, did you not get sucked into that sort of I'm not same, stupid yeah. I think you know and that's awful because I don't think all addicts are idiots oh, but no, of course like not. in terms but, of like being 15 and doing yeah. it that's like reckless and kind of nuts and I'm you know I think because I had a really good mum it was like there was no way I'd do that and I think I always knew that I'd get out of the godforsaken town mm-hmm. but I didn't know how and kind of couldn't really be bothered because right. probably too stoned um Went and worked in a shop for a year and was like, I cannot do this. So what sort of shop did you work in? H&M. Oh, okay. So like a real yeah, yeah mainstream sort of, yeah. like, you know. Okay, so what job were you doing at H&M? Just stacking, like, you know, doing the rails and working the, the people coming in, trying stuff on, doing the tills. So tell me this. How important do you think it is? Because this is a little pet theory of mine. And, of course, with all pet theories, they're not 100% yeah. you know, right. But I kind of feel like the more successful artists have it had at least one terrible, terrible <laughs> job that they know that, that they never want to go back to. I Sometimes I, I'm a bit sus of people who've never had a real terrible <laughs> job and are doing art because I'm like, just do something terrible so you understand what normal life is like. It's funny, it. isn't it? I think you're right. I do. I don't know because it's really mean to say like just because you were privileged and just because you've had money that that somehow makes your opinion or your life experience not valid, right? But, you know, I'm also a working class person that's like total staunch labour and like really really hates the Tories so like of course I think that hard graft equals amazing comedy and like life experience but like I didn't just work but in it H&M like, I mean, it's, hard, it's hard for you know it's hard for you know some some really rich comedian to come out and be like you know uh, so my driver yeah, took the wrong no. way this morning and yeah. what's the deal with that <laughs> what's up with drivers hey guys uh, <laughs> what's with caviar being so expensive these days yeah no you don't actually I think yeah you don't really get that many like middle you get loads of middle class but like yeah. toffs um i think it's true i mean i think less I'm, i don't write stand up that often so i don't think it's like it's like solid like material but like i do think i can like i've worked the shittest jobs in my like i used to work in a bookies like it got held up with people with guns oh, really? like i used to clean toilets in a kid's school which was like the grossest like imagine children like tiny children's toilets i've worked since i was like 14 uh-huh. i worked in a chip shop for quite a long time you know I, my mum's a cleaner and she's irons like it we work we're a working family yeah. and um and i and i've always had to work for money and so all of those things, I think, maybe they didn't give me like armor for like or like um, arm uh, to, uh, what it, like material, but they made me never want to do those things again. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. I really do feel like you know sometimes. I mean, particularly, and I only speak from the perspective of performers, just because it's what I see more often. Mm. But I do sometimes look at the people who went straight from high school to stand up or, or you know to performing and think just. Just do anything else first. Yeah. Just, it doesn't matter what it is. Make it the most terrible thing in the world. But <laughs> just know that there are terrible things out there. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you 
finish high school, what happens? So I do this job for a year. I'm like, this. I can't do this forever. I can't live here forever. Everyone else has left. Um, I decide I have to go back and study. And I go and do a night course of history. <laughs> it was history, English literature, and media studies. I had to get A-levels to get to university. And I knew I wanted to go to university then because everyone had gone. It was really fun. I kept visiting them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the woman that had... The law teacher at the school that I'd gone to had been, kept in contact with me because she worked at this night college that I was at. And she was like, you should do law. But I didn't have the grades. So I was like... Um, is there anything like she was like but you can do this thing called a law conversion course in the UK where you can do any degree and then you go and do a study for two years and it turns your degree into a law degree and then you can become a barrister Uh so I just thought I really want to buy my mum's flat for her her house and um, it would be so cool to be a barrister so I thought what can I study that's really easy and I was like I'll study theatre and art (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's what happened And and then I loved it yeah. And I got sidetracked and I never did buy my mum's flat. But I still hope, like... <laughs> I still hope one day I'll be able to off the performance art salary that I get. Oh, that, that will be a great moment. If you can I buy know. your mum's flat on a performance art, that's, mm. that's a good moment. So you fall in love with it, why? And why particularly performance mm. art? Of, yeah. all the, of all the, you know, things that you can study when it comes to theatre, yeah. like what was it about, you know, performance art that particularly, was there someone or something or some facet of it that particularly resonated with you? So when I got there, the course wasn't really theatre and it wasn't really art. It was like, it was performance art. And okay. so it was a study of like performance artists from like Dardaists in like the, the 30s or whenever that was, all the way through to like the present day. And so it was like, there was no text. We didn't study any text, like no Shakespeare. Okay. Um, we didn't learn how to act. Although that is what it said in the prospectus. It was this really left field kind of strange course taught by like hippies, basically. And yeah, I just... Right. I just got really into into the artists, really. That I, I just never heard of anything like that before. It was so exciting, like Frank O'B, like making a protest about the fact that he couldn't give blood because he was gay, and he would bleed all over canvases in the turbine hall of the Tate and put them up and display them or make clothes out of them. And then Marina Abramovich, like putting all of her object or loads of objects in a room with her in a gallery including a loaded gun and all of this stuff and then saying to the audience do what you want to me for 12 hours you know it was like at the extreme of what human beings were allowing their experience to be now of course some people will think that sounds crap or like that sounds like um so uh, you know self self obsessed or whatever i just found it fascinating yep. and i just found it really like communicating in that way very exciting and I just met really lovely people that I was just like who were also really fascinated by it. and then I realized I was a nerd that I was like really obsessed with like this thing and that I was really wanting to know all about it and I'd never felt like that before I never cared I was like I just study them how much I need to study and smoke the weed and and so I just I found the thing I loved I guess and it's so weird because my mum was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I'm cutting myself. Like, I'm bleeding. <laughs> but I think at least I felt like I had in some way... I mean, people don't accept me that much into the live art world. That, And it's a kind of strange thing because I'm very poppy, you know. I'm kind of... My work's quite pink and often quite, like, music. And Okay, so that's interesting to me. Yeah. Because uh, I consider you to be... because. I'm a very much uh, just I'm, I'm a stand up like and yeah. that's really what I am in fact I would like you know even say that when it comes to stand up comedy you know my philosophy was always I knew I was never going to be you know as brilliant or provocative as a Bill Hicks or a George Carlin or whatever but what I wanted to do was kind of something that would be mainstream popular but not shit like I thought you could be both. I thought yeah. you could be like, you know, like popular, but also do something that was worth at least listening to and like talk about interesting topics in kind of a, a mainstream way. So yeah. when I see what you do, like I always see you as being so like wonderfully provocative or interesting <laughs> or like yeah. edgy. But I guess maybe because in the in, mm. in, from the performance art world, are you seen as being a bit more mainstream or get, what how I, does that work yeah i think so right i'm called the princess of performance art right which is weird that's what someone called me in the so you're like the mainstream paper. crossover i'm like the kylie of Are you the kylie? yeah <laughs> i think exeunt magazine called me the kylie of performance art which is weird because i don't know like i would have thought kylie's the kylie of performance yeah, art. exactly <laughs> just let kylie alone 
let her be the princess of everything. Um, yeah, I don't. It's maybe it's like maybe it's my own insecurity or my own kind of like self doubt. But I don't get involved. I don't do much gallery work. Uh-huh. I don't. I don't um, get invited to major art festivals. So, but then performance artists are often on the periphery of that. It's often more sculpt, you know, sculpture or kind of video art. More and more performance art kind of has its heyday every now and then. So um, I can't remember why I was saying that I didn't feel like I was a really kind of that experimental. Well, I, I, like I, what I wanted to, like while we were talking about this, because the thing that was interesting was like, how much is uh, are, are other people's opinions of what you do yeah. uh, important to you? Yeah. Uh, which voices do you listen to? Yeah. Which ones do you try to ignore? <laughs> how do you like, you know, take feedback into your work? Yeah, well, I'm quite secretive when it comes to making work I don't do I don't make work like a stand-up word I don't trial stuff in a public way I, I make stuff in my own studio and then I have a very uh carefully selected invited audience I invite and I share probably every at the end of every week that I'm making something and I might make for like eight weeks um and they're people that are either my dramaturg or my kind of or people that I t- tend to get to help me write stuff uh, and then there'll also be like friends and then there'll also be an opportunity for each of those people to bring someone that's never seen my work before and there always has to be a good percentage of people that haven't seen me uh-huh. but also that aren't artists or in the art industry and then I do a very specific form so I show the work I've already planned and schemed exactly how I want them to make the audience feel very mathematical about how I make work and then they fill in a form and they let me know if the work is working oh and then I go back into the studio back to the drawing board and so you really do will take that feedback yeah. You're on board? But the, sp- the questions are very specific. Uh-huh. I don't, what I don't give like is... Give me an example of like, say, a question you would ask, just to give us an example what of what did you What did you mean. see? Oh, okay. So it's like, I know what I'm doing, or I think I know what I'm doing, but if I think I'm, I'm this wonderful, majestic woman riding in on a horse, and then someone says, some stupid bitch, um, like, flumped in on, a, on, like, a fake horse, like a dick, then I know that it's not majestic and amazing and, like, how I imagined it in my head, you know? So I, I, I check what my imaginary idea of what I look like and what's going on is that's against... A, that's really interesting to me, because I so often think that's the the hardest thing and stand-ups I think get this wrong all the time myself included where you know how the, what the story is about in your head so sometimes you skip an important bit because you don't need it you get yeah. it but you haven't told the audience yeah, the bit that exactly. they really need to understand to respond to the story yeah so, so it's sort of checking checking I mean I yeah, I make work quite mathematically. I know what the. I always make sure that my work is concerned with one question. Like, why is the world trying to sexualize and commodify my nine-year-old niece? Was like my last big show that I made. So um, that was. So you really do just start with a, with a question, one question about the world. It's very interesting, and then the rest <laughs> of the show is an exploration of that it idea. Is. Really, yeah, it is, and it kind of, and it might be abstract or it might be like completely lecture-based format the form is always determined by the subject matter i don't let the form be determined by my ego so like if it's going to be an audio piece that can only be downloaded that's what that piece of that's what that subject matter needs if it's a one-to-one performance it will last only one performance you know one day at a festival that's what that subject needs so for me it was never about um, being a theatre maker, comedian. It was like, I'm interested in this topic. I get really nerdy about something. I get really obsessed with it. And then I think, okay, like, for example, somebody asked me to make a work about cancer. And um, I said, the only time I'd ever want to make a show about cancer is if it's a musical. There, that's the decision. It has to be a musical because they're so vast joyous they are concerned with huge subjects but they also have space for humor Uh if you asked me to write a one-woman show about cancer i would never make it it would be shit it would be like let me tell you my cancer story you know which is like the worst show ever right so yeah cancer the musical i mean that's well exactly (laughs) yeah yeah i'm trying i'm trying my best to like not make it like anna nicole the opera or kind of jerry springer the musical because Uh like this kind of like ironic choice of like form uh, uh, to do with subject matter but more to do with like Sondheim when he's like he deals with racism or he deals with like pure poverty but it's like so epic and joyful you know it's interesting to me uh the idea of trying to convey uh like a complex idea and then let the form 
you know, the, the, the method of delivery kind of, you know, take care of itself. Yeah. There must be sometimes a temptation or pressure externally for then, if something's been successful, to then turn it into another format though, right? Yeah. To write a book or to turn yeah. it into a show or a DVD or a blah, blah, blah. How yeah. do you deal with those sort of things? I do select the wraparound activity at the beginning as well, so right. I'm quite organised. <laughs> you are, really are. <laughs> uh, it's because I'm also teaching this week, so I'm teaching artists, so it's like right. I'm sort of in that mindset. So like I might know that like for example the show credible likable superstar role model it's a it's a theater show with my niece she's nine Mm -hmm. it's kind of set in a fantasy land and it's about the world trying to sexualize and commodify children but it's also the play version of that because it felt like it was okay to make a play and then in order to make the show i asked my niece to invent a pop star um and i promised her that i would become that pop star and that i'd make her world famous so there was a whole social campaign that Uh happened before you know 22 million people accessed that pop star and so it had like a shelf life that had that pop star had music a website had gigs I played main stage at festival with that pop star, you know, so like, it's like, and in a way there was the download available of the iTunes of the music. Mm. So I always select like what the wraparound activity is. And often like, it can also be the art happens in press. That happens a lot for me. Like the press campaign is as important to the creation of the work and the viewing of the work as the theater show at the end. So I choose, I select how an audience will access the work at the beginning. <laughs> no, I think I find this absolutely fan- fantastic. And yeah. how do you get a sense of do you, do you have a sense of who your audience is when you're thinking about these things or yeah. are you just thinking purely about the work and then going, well, then hopefully it will access a certain audience. Do you have a clear idea in your mind of, you know, that this is perhaps who this will respond to or who I'm trying to get it out to or who I'm trying to engage it? Yeah, I do. I Obviously, I want my work to be really accessible. I pick really accessible themes. Like that's what I mean about. So I was talking about earlier, actually, about like the performance art world, like really not being that welcoming because I don't try and abstract things. I don't make things difficult. I make things really easy, big concepts, but really accessible. Yeah, big questions, uh-huh. but really accessible. And I really would hope that my nan would come and see it and still take something from it. But like for example, the show with Tim the idea is that it's men that come and see that show and not just men that like art, but men that work in advertising. So Mm -hmm. like there's a massive campaign around us getting like groups of men from advertising companies to come and see the show as well as all the old theater bobs that will always come. But um, that work was made for men, men that might have mental health problems and didn't want to talk about it. So often the audience, I mean, it's normally the theater audience. I know that they're going to come and then there might be like an extra kind of like add on. Like, I think this is much more for older people, this show, or, you know, I think this would be really good for children. Like I make work for children as well. Uh, so, uh, when you talk about the, the process of like putting something together and you said that you're teaching, you know, this week, yeah. Um, how do you think about, and I imagine you have thought about it seeing that, you know, you think about everything quite meticulously. <laughs> how have you thought about how you pass on knowledge to other people? Like, how have you thought about, you know, as a teacher, what do I tell people? What do I say to people? Cause I assume you don't want to be prescriptive too much in, but is there certain rules or things or things that you really want to pass on to other people? I, I really, I've really tried my best to kind of come up with a theory, right? Not a theory that's only specific to me making work, but a theory that I can pass on, right? And so I teach week-long workshops and I write a lot and I'm trying to write a book in the end probably about how I make work and the things that I find really helpful and things that I find really destructive because I think that a lot of artists, every artist I come into contact with on my workshops and just artists in general are like, riddled with self-doubt absolutely paralyzed by procrastination often really find it really difficult to find starting points can't work alone in a room you know like there's all those classic things and actually I find making art really easy and it's not because I'm really good at it but I find it's just because I've devised these techniques to keep myself from self-doubting like I have this thing where everybody in my workshop all week does a thing called a blitz where they they can't stop dancing and when they stop they have to write something and when we start again they can't write anymore and then we stop and they write because it's like almost like you have to get out of your own head all the time Uh so most of the workshop we're just dancing to like MC Hammer and then like every now and then you know like I'm like right and that's what I do when I'm on my own so I kind of I and a couple of people have asked me this week for the first time ever because I think they're more established artists and often I'll work with like why are you handing all of this information to us this is exactly how you make work like don't you mind that we're going to use it and I'm like no of course not because 
you're never going to do it like I'll do it, you know. You'll never... It's like generating material. It's not my material, you know. So, yeah, I, I think it's very important to dispel that kind of myth that it's really hard to make art because it's sort of what you're told at university as well. And it's like, hang on, why isn't anyone telling people like it's really joyous and beautiful? Like I think I, that we yeah. do often uh, make that mistake, all of us. Yeah. You know, that it's just, um, it's, sometimes it's just fun to make something mm. or just to like start. Yeah. Or to not like worry that it's got to be great at the start. Yeah. To just like make at the start. Or to make loads how... of shit stuff on purpose, you know, right. and be like, let's write the shittest version of the show. Right. <laughs> right at the beginning, you know, like one of the things I ask is like, write the shit, like write the shit show that you're going to make out of this subject matter. Okay. Now write the good show, <laughs> you know. That's a, that's a really good way of approaching it. Oh, yeah, like why not? All right. Sometimes um, it can be good. So there's so many things I want to talk about, but we're running a little bit out of time because I've got a show in a little bit. So um, <laughs> we need to uh, get through a couple of these things. So I want to ask you um, about, uh, so you're going to be a parent. Have you thought about how you're going to parent? Have you and Tim talked about <laughs> like certain, you know, the way you guys are going to, you know, approach it and, and you know, whether you have any specific philosophy oh or whatever what you want to. Yeah, I think we're very similar. He and I are very practical and, um, quite logical not not super emotional as people probably robots um (laughs) robot parents um i think we've decided that we don't want to do that kind of like when it's a baby like it sleeps in our bed it kind of demand fed feeding and all that like kind of hippie stuff and my mum's really disappointed i think because she's like really you know she was like really like hippified she used to live in adelaide and she was like you know the boob the boob was just out all the time we want to have structure and kind of like, you know, it's going to be like, this is the bedtime and you're just going to do that. And it probably won't work at all. I also love, though, that the strictest parent on the block is going to be the performance artist. I and know. It's so counterintuitive, <laughs> but I love everything about it. Um, but I think... I you get away with everything. It's because your mum isn't a performance artist. She's so picky about everything. Yeah. She's so organised. Um, I think I got really used to having a child around when I was on tour with Taylor. So I was uh-huh. on tour with her for nearly like two years. So I got really used to um, having a child, you know, I guess. Right. And and she was such a good kid, but I also, I really enjoyed having the time to be like, you see that, this is this is what that is. And it's like that because, you know, because of the government or, you know, and really like having these like really kind of in-depth talks with her. And she was like nine and she's like from a family well, there's like seven of them nearly six of them another one probably coming soon i'm sure but um they don't have time to have these conversations and so i always really loved she wasn't even that interested but i really right. loved <laughs> imparting knowledge onto her and kind of like and you know part of the project that we did was like i want her to be a feminist you know right. i wanted to understand what that means so I really love teaching, you know, and I love children. So, and I love fucking like messing around with them and like really having fun. So I'm childlike in myself, I guess. So I just really want them to be, to feel really secure, but also to like totally have a wicked childhood and have so much fun. I had so much fun when I was a kid. It's like constantly in fields, like running around like an idiot and like just free. And I just want them to feel free. Do you have an attitude to where you would like to raise children? Yeah, I need, I do need to be in the country. I don't. And I've had this like really strong feeling because I've got lots of mates that are from London and they grew up in London. They're always like the coolest ones. (laughs) And they're like, they're so far in their career and they know everybody and they're so smart and streetwise. But I just... I just can't, I can't deny them like the smell of like running through like a field and like climbing trees and Tim's exactly the same. So we're both, I think we're both like, we want to bring our kid up in the countryside, but we don't want them to be a cunt, you know? (laughs) That's a pretty good attitude. That's almost a philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) Like we don't want them to be like closed minded, towny, racist, you know, all of those things that equal British town really which is a terrible thing to say but it is kind of like UKIP supporters so in a way it's going to come in and out of London it's going to have its gay uncles I've got a lesbian sister like it's you know like I've got friends that are from all over the world so hopefully but then you have that do you ever have this feeling of like oh no they're going to be one of those horrible annoying art kids I meet people that have got like really annoying like art kids that are at festivals like Tarquin look at him running around Look at how liberal he is. I hate him, you know? 
I hate those kids. <laughs> oh, I know. And um, that's I bet that's how I'm going to raise my children. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I will become everything that I hate. I know. Uh, me too, probably. We need to finish up in a minute, but I want to ask you a couple of quick questions uh, before the end. Uh, do you... Uh, have any feelings of what happens when you die? Do you care? Do you, uh, now that you are going to be a parent? Does <laughs> Just a death, quick question. Does, well, you know, I mean, we've got a little bit of time. Yeah. It's not, you don't have to answer it in 30 seconds. Yeah. But it's one I'd like to ask people is, are, are you aware of death? Is it something that is conscious in your life or in your work? B, is about to be a parent, change, does that change it in any way? Um. Because I'm writing this musical about cancer and because it's it's in collaboration with like seven people that have cancer, I think, and, what, and a couple of them are terminal and, you know, one of them's already died recently. I think it's just been the last year or so that I've been really thinking about death. Um, I've never I've never been like, I never think about death. I always know that that's the end point. I don't have a faith. So I've never thought anything other than my body returns to the earth. It feeds worms, which feeds birds, which feeds, you know, the, and I think of that as my as my philosophy, I guess, is that that is what will happen. A, a sort of circle of life. Yeah, exactly. We're all circle part of, it. Yeah. of life. The Lion King. You've got to be yeah, the Lion King, yeah. right? And I got it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, yeah. And what I want to say is my philosophy is Hakuna Matata. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I don't I don't I don't think it's anything more than that and I'm kind of happy with that yeah. like I take from the earth I give to the earth and I'm that sounds really cheesy but that's how I feel no 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 that doesn't sound cheesy at all I think that seems like a so you don't have any sense that it's bigger than that at all there's never been a point in your life where never. you're like I feel like there's more than this do you believe that we're probably just an accident in the corner of the universe yeah I do so then with that in mind how do you then find meaning in your life like what i mean i don't mean how yeah. do you act like a christian yeah. person would say how do you find meaning? Yeah. i mean how do you personally what what meaning do you give your life well i kind of feel like that might give it a bit more urgency mm-hmm. you know like if you know that you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to wherever you think you're going to go to then why bother now you know, it's right. going to be great later. So I feel like if you just admit that there's not going to be, probably not going to be, you know, I'm agnostic. I'm not going to say like there's nothing. Right. So you can't say that. But if like, you admit that you don't know. Yeah, I admit, don't know. But the yeah. thing that I always <laughs> seem to think, and and please feel free to disagree with this, but the thing that I always say when it's on this point yeah. is, of course, I believe there are things that I can't explain. Yeah. You can't live as a human being and love and feel and all those sort of things without thinking, you know, yeah. there's, these are things that... But here's the thing. In our lifetimes, no one... In the lifetime that we personally are going to, there's not going to be a solution. No, no one's going to come up with the idea of. Oh no, we've nailed it. Yeah, it was definitely Muhammad. Yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. Like you yeah. know what I mean? Like that's what I think. So, so yeah. So therefore, it's like, well, then it, this is the time. This is the chance. Like I guess it's Buddhist in the way of like we live in the now and make it good and, but also don't worry if it's not and don't be a bastard to everybody else because everybody else has just got one. You know. So I think. I don't think anything happens and I, and I don't fear death, but I certainly think about it a lot more. And I think it's less to do with the baby. I don't think it's anything really to do with that yet. Although that probably become really poignant. I reckon like then it's like, shit must be more careful. Don't die. Uh-huh. Um, or don't kill the baby by accident. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's more to do with, you know, having not really had anyone die very close to me and then now being very much, talking about death all the time and the fear of death and kind of the musical very much being about the fact that we don't talk about death enough and so therefore cancer is still this really terrifying thing and how about if we talked about death more it wouldn't be so terrifying that that I think it's very close to me at the moment for some reason death Uh, if uh, you could change one thing about your life is there something that you would have changed is there something a mistake you made or a thing because I tend to believe that most of the things that make us us who we are now you know you never know which are the influential things Mm. so if you took out a good thing or a bad thing it might change who you are right now but is there a regret or a time you did something where you just were like I just wish that one if I had one do over this would be it no that's nice that's a nice thing to think I don't but then I but then no, I don't. I don't think about the past that much. I Interesting. Yeah. So 
Uh, do you find yourself not a reflective person at all about the past? Is that because you're constantly looking forward, trying to create something new? I think it's that. And I think that actually sometimes that can be like a bit of a problem for me is that like, it's like, why don't you just think for a second why that happened? And instead it's like, well, you know, like I can't sit still, like I can't. And Tim's always like, why do you need to know? Like, and like, so like the baby, we find out we're pregnant. It's like, instead of being like, yeah, I'm like, I can't wait to feel it move. Then it's like, when the baby starts moving, it's like, I can't wait to push it out. You know, like, it's like, it can't even... Even like I didn't even I didn't even get a chance to go like wow it moving is so amazing it's like done tick what how's it gonna feel when it comes out my vagina done tick like I'm and I do feel like sometimes I should slow down a little bit and in I think your, maybe I am in your work are you able to be present and in the moment though like is there because I mean what you're mm. talking about sometimes is that like I mean that idea if you feel looking forward how can you be you know present like yeah. right in that moment probably I imagine with your work you must only have to when be I'm right. on stage right probably right. only in that moment am I like that's a very bu- that's a very Buddhist th- th- thought isn't it that it's like when you're on stage, right, it's very difficult to be on autopilot, especially if you like if you improvise or especially if you kind of it's new and you've never had a more confronting situation than 200 people staring at you going like, do it, do it. And you're like, shit. And it's that, probably the only moment where I probably stop and go, this is the one thing I have to focus on. And that's probably why I really enjoy performing. And also like, um, yeah, I think it's. I really like being on stage. I can't remember what I was going to say. I really like being on stage. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, we should, we should finish up regardless, but I want to, uh, let's uh, make sure we plug uh, particularly some Brisbane shows yeah. that you were doing because uh, this will come out. You're going to play the Brisbane Powerhouse uh, with, uh, and now is that the show with Tim or are you doing a different Yes, yes. it is the show with Tim, which is called Fake It Till You Make It. And uh, I know you're also doing some London shows at that because I walked by a giant poster of it down by the underbelly. So. <laughs> did it have something written on its forehead? It did. It said uh, something Tories about Tories hate women. Hate women. <laughs> <laughs> someone was like, someone's written something on your poster. I was like, I bet they've written cunt. And they were like, no, Tories hate women. Tories hate women. I don't it's know on your why. Forehead. Yeah, they've yep. cleaned it off. I was like, called them off. I was like, take that off. <laughs> That's not promotion. <laughs> It's negative press. Um, yeah, I've got Brisbane Powerhouse in June. I think the 19th of June we, we were there for a week. Well, people in Australia, you can Google it and make sure yeah. that you're fine. But it's it definitely it worth coming it. out and seeing the show. Yeah. And um, and then uh, where does that show, what happens after South that? South Bank in July yes. and then uh, Latitude Festival for like a festival edition. And then um, Edinburgh at the Traverse. And then, and then it's on tour. It'll be on tour for like until May, I think, the following year. So May next year. So for another year. And uh, are you on social media or any of those places? Yes, at Bryony Kimmings on Twitter. And my website is brianiekimmings.com. If you come and see the show in the next six months, I'll be heavily pregnant, which I think is a nice addition to the love story. Well, I mean, not in the next... You, what are you? You're five months. You're not going to have 11. Oh, yeah, no. I finish in October. <laughs> I'm going to carry mine for 11. That's my new project. <laughs> that's your, what you play. That's your next show. Put my f- hand up there. The keep my legs months. crossed. Just yeah. keeping it in. <laughs> like an elephant. <laughs> I'm going to gestate for as long as an elephant. <laughs> Okay, well, this has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for no, doing the thank podcast. You. I'm glad that you could squeeze it in and uh, someone's knocking at the door. So there we go. <laughs> we might as well finish on that note.
Stay for. 